Lord, it was grace that taught my heart to fear. Um, hearing that last line that Chris read this morning, if you do not let my firstborn go, I will kill your firstborn. Lord, that should stir fear. Uh, Lord, you are mighty. As, as Hebrews 12 says, you are a consuming fire. And yet, was grace that that fear relieved. Um, Lord, Moses draws near. Moses speaks with you. Moses argues with you. Your, your anger is kindled, and yet he's not snuffed out. And Lord, that was your grace as well. So we are grateful for your grace. It is amazing. And we pray that you would give us more of it. Lord, would you pour your grace on us now as we turn to your word? Help us to see and understand what you want us to see, what you need us to hear, what you want us to believe from your word this morning. Be with us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, I think you remember I was saying how I couldn't get the outline right. I kept wrestling with the outline, and it occurred to me it's because I'm doing half the dialogue. I'm doing half the story. Um, I, I was kind of thinking this week, I need to retool my brain to think in Old Testament narrative terms because it's bigger pieces. There's, there's more to cover. And um, I, I still think I did the right thing in stopping where I did last week. There was just too much to do. Um, but we're kind of jumping back into the conversation, and, and it's kind of awkward to do this, but uh, there's just so much packed into the, this chapter 3 and chapter 4, we kind of have to do it. So just a recap real quick. Moses is tending sheep. He sees a, a, a bush that's on fire but isn't being consumed. He turns to see what it is. As he draws near, it's the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord says, Moses, stop. Don't take another step. You are on holy ground. Take off your shoes. And then Moses answers the, the, the spirit of God and, and wants to know who he is. Who is this? Um, God is telling him to go and deliver his people from Egypt. And he says, who am I? Who am I to do that? And God's answer is, I'm with you. That's who you are. And he says, okay, well, if I'm going to go and they ask who you are, what should I say? So his second question is, who are you? And God's answer is, I am who I am. I am simply existence. That's who I am. So when you go and you tell them, tell them I am sent you. And so that's kind of where we left it was, was Moses was talking with God about these things. And God ends that section by saying, you're going to go and you're going to deliver my people from Egypt. And when they leave, they're going to plunder the Egyptians. They're going to take with them their gold and everything. And so that's kind of where we stopped last week. Um, so that was really, I mean, the whole thing is really consumed in that idea of God is, I am who I am. I am existence. I am being. That's just who I am. There's never a time when I wasn't. I've always been. If I wasn't, then there is nothing now. And so it's the huge philosophical concepts. This week, uh, we come way down to earth. We, we land really quick. It's Moses' objections. Moses is, yeah, buts. So he's been commissioned to go and deliver his people. And so he, he offers these objections. Lord, but what about this? What about that? Um, so he knows who God is. He understands, but... He thinks that he's not fit for it. He understands God could do these things, but he's not fit for this job. So here's where he goes. He, he answers, God, I, I understand who you are, and I'll announce your name to the people, but this is what they're going to say. Behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say the Lord has not appeared to you. So he says they. Now the context was uh, back in the middle of chapter 3, God said, go to my people and tell them that is the God of the fathers of uh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, who speaks to them. Then he kind of goes off and he talks about destroying um, Pharaoh and, and um, 
leading his people out of Egypt. So when you come back here, who's they? Well, the immediate precedent, preceding person was Egypt, but that's not who he's speaking to. He's, he's clearly speaking to his people because it's his people who said, well, who, what's the, the name of the God that sent you? So we're back to that theme. We kind of picked that back up. So Moses says, look, I'm going to come and I'm going to tell them, Yahweh sent me. That, that's who sent me to deliver you. And they're not going to believe that you appeared to me. Notice he doesn't say they're not going to believe you exist. He says, they just aren't going to believe that I am the one that you sent. Why? Now, why is that? Well, Moses' history, we get very little of it at this point, but it ain't pretty. He, he killed an Egyptian and hid the body in the sand, and then he tried to break up a fight between two Hebrews, and they go, well, who are you? And so he's got a history with the people, and it's not really great, and it's been about 40 years, so he's going to go back and, and reappear to them. He's, he's just really skeptical whether they'll accept him or not. So God's response to him is not, shut up and go. Um, we, we sang this morning of God's amazing grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor to us. Nothing we do earns it. He just pours his love on us. And here's some of his unmerited favor. Moses says, but they're not going to believe me. And so God says, what's in your hand? Moses said, well, it's a staff. Moses has been a shepherd for a long time, so of course he's got a staff. A staff is just a piece of wood that they would pick up off the ground, a nice big stick, maybe you know anywhere from three to six foot tall, something along those lines. And of course a shepherd would have a staff. The shepherd's got to wrangle the sheep and the goats, and so he'd use a staff to knock them around, and he's got to chase off predators and defend himself and that kind of thing. So he's got a staff in his hand, and God says, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. Now, the word for the uh, serpent there is just the general term for what a snake is. It's not really specific as to which kind. But do you think something that can be inferred from that because of Moses' reaction to it? If, if I threw a stick on the ground and it turned into a garter snake, I would probably pick it up. <laughs> oh, look, it's cool. I love these little things. Um, if it's a dangerous snake, then I might run from it. And, and that's exactly what Moses did. He saw the snake appear on the ground. And first of all, it's a pretty impressive miracle to begin with. But also, apparently this is a dangerous snake, and so he runs from it. And the Lord said, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. This is the dumbest way to pick up a snake. And I speak from experience, okay? I have done this. I grew up, my parents had a 100-acre farm. It had two lakes on it and a stream, a creek that ran through it. And I would go up there every summer when I was a kid and just live it up, either work my tail off on the farm or just go fishing or whatever. So one summer late afternoon, my sister, my younger sister and I are walking through the creek. It was nice, you know, not deep water, kind of running smoothly. And as we're walking, all of a sudden, the snake slithers by me on the surface of the water. So being the rocket scientist genius that I am, I reached over and picked it up by the tail. And I was reaching to grab its head and it, you know, Memory is a notoriously untrustworthy thing. I have this picture in my head of what happened. As I'm reaching for it, everything goes into slow motion. And as my hand is heading over to get to its head, all of a sudden its head rears up and this mouth opens, which is about six and a half feet wide <laughs> and got 12 foot razor sharp fangs. And it's bright white and it's heading right for my hand. And so I dropped the snake and we split, we ran. So never, this is experience, guys, never pick up a snake by the tail. Because <laughs> what you do when you pick it up by the tail is you leave the business end open for business. And so Moses is afraid of the snake, 
And God says, now go grab it by the tail. Go grab it in the worst possible way you could. And so he hesitatingly reaches over and picks it up, grabs it by the tail, and it turns into a staff. And he sa- God tells him, um, I want you to do that so that they will know that I have sent you. So they will believe this. And so the second thing he says, okay, if they don't believe that, how about this? Let's try this one. Put your hand into your cloak. Now pull your hand out. And he pulls his hand out, and it's white. It is leprous. It's covered with white. He says, okay, now put it back in and pull it back out, and it's clean. So there's the second miracle. If they don't believe the first one, they'll believe the second one. And then the third one is if they don't buy either of those, go get some water from the Nile and pour it out on the ground, and it'll turn to blood. And and when you do these miracles, that will confirm to them that I have sent you. Now, I fussed most of the week over why these three miracles. Why these? Why why this thing? So let's take them one at a time. Why turn a stick into a serpent? Well, the obvious answer is, first of all, it's handy, right? It's portable. He's going to have the staff um, that's just going to be available, so God could use that. But why throw it on the ground and turn turn it into a serpent? Why not a wolf? or a, a, a lion or something. Why a serpent? Well, it kind of looks serpentine, right? It looks like that. But I think there's more to it than just the utility. Um, I think what God is doing in these three miracles is he's communicating his authority here. So when he throws the serpent on the ground and Moses recoils from it, I said it's probably a poisonous serpent. The, the symbol of, of Pharaoh's power was the cobra. It was a, a poisonous serpent was the symbol, the, 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 the image of Pharaoh's authority. So when the president speaks, what's behind him on the wall? A bald eagle. So it would be like if Moses was told, now I want you to go into the office of the president and throw your stick on the ground and it'll turn into a bald eagle. And then reach out and grab it by its tail, by its tail feathers, and it'll turn back into a stick. It's, it's that kind of a thing. What he's showing him is he's saying, I have authority over Pharaoh. Pharaoh's crown had a uresis. It was a, a reared up stylized cobra with its neck flared and everything on his headdress. You ever see those pictures? Um, later, when there were two kingdoms, upper and lower uh, Egypt were united, uh, they put two symbols. One was the serpent, the other one was a white vulture. And actually what happened was in the up, uh, upper and the lower kingdom, they both represented roughly the same God. Not the same name, but the, the God that had the same kind of role. So to show a united um, Egypt, they put both symbols on his headdress. But the symbol of the serpent represented a God who protected Pharaoh, who gave Pharaoh his authority. By wearing that, that said he had authority over everything. He owned everything. He owned the land. Now, we know why he owned the land, right? Remember that? It's because of Joseph. Joseph told him there was a, a famine coming, and then he administered it. And he said, well, you know, you're out of stuff. You're out of money. What else he got? <laughs> And he won everything for Pharaoh. So that's why Pharaoh owns everything. But it's been at least 400 years. So the mythology changes and and now this God has given it to him. So what God is saying is he's saying, Moses, I want you to take something ordinary, something plain, a stick, nothing special, and throw it on the ground. And I'm going to turn it into a representation of Pharaoh and his authority and his rule and his power and everything that he has. And then I want you to grab it in the worst possible place. Snag it by its tail. Moses, I'm sending you to Pharaoh, and I'm sending you in the most vulnerable position you could possibly be in. You don't have an army. It's you. You're going to walk into Pharaoh's presence and say, let my people go. 
You're grabbing, the, you're grabbing the snake by the tail, and what's going to happen? I have authority over that snake. I can give that snake. I can take that snake away. It's going to turn back into something common in your hands, something that you're going to use. So go do that miracle. And if they don't believe that one, now try this one. Put your hand in your coat. Just stick it in your robe, pull it out, and it'll be leprous. Now, I've said this before, but you have to repeat it. It's, it's in the... Um, the preacher's contract, you have to repeat these things. Um, leprosy, when we think of leprosy, we think of like digits falling off and, and, and skin rotting and that kind of stuff. It's a really a horrible disease. But back in those days, leprosy was any skin disease. It was any kind of thing. So think of like cancer. Is there one thing called cancer? Breast cancer is different than colon cancer, is different than lung cancer. They kind of covers an umbrella. So when he says leprosy here, it's not the kind that makes digits fall off. It is any skin disease. And in the ancient world, people were terrified of skin diseases because they were communicable and they could really disable you. So when Moses puts his hand in his coat and he pulls it out and it's white, I picture the, the skin dried up and flaking off and it's just white and horrible looking. And then when he puts it back in and pulls it back out and now it's, he says it's like the rest of his skin. What's God communicating in this miracle? Well, if he struck Pharaoh with the first miracle, he's hitting everybody else with the second one. Skin disease was not restricted to one class or one type of people. It could strike anybody in the nation of Egypt. And so even today, there is actual leprosy in, in Egypt now, and they have some of the last remaining leper colonies. But back in that day, they would cast people out. They would send them away. And it could be royalty, it could be somebody in Pharaoh's court, it could be the common person in the street, it could be a slave in Pharaoh's you know, slavery. Um, anything could be struck with this skin disease. So by showing that Moses, that God through Moses has got authority over disease, that he can inflict it on whoever he wants and he can remove it from anybody he wants, he's saying, not only can I strike Pharaoh if I decide, I can strike the people as well. And it's in my power to make them whole. I can, I can send disease and I can remove disease. It's not their gods that do that. That's me. Notice in both of these cases, Moses is told to do a thing, right? Throw a stick on the ground, stick your coat, hand in your coat. Is he given an incantation that he should recite when he does this? Is he given a, uh, an amulet, a symbol that will make this happen? It's not Moses' power that does these things. It's God's power. And so when God says, I can strike, I can inflict Pharaoh, and I can strike the common people, it's, Moses, I'm going to do it through you. He used a common stick. Did he have his hand put in some special vase or anything? No, he stuck it in his coat, the thing that he carried with him all the time. Again, this miracle would be portable. He could do it anywhere. But he's showing again, God is saying, look, I'm over, I'm over Pharaoh, I'm over the people. What about the last one? Now I want you to go to the Nile, take some water and pour it out on the ground, and it'll turn to blood. The Nile was the life of Egypt. It was how they had any kind of food because the Nile at certain stages would flood and the silt from the Nile would wash up onto the shore. It would be like fertilizer. And then the Nile would settle back down and now they could go out and they could plant in those areas and they had great success with growing food. It was their source of food. It was their source of commerce, especially later with the upper and lower kingdoms. They mean upper and lower Nile. You know, from, from farther down the Nile or farther up the Nile, they could ship on the Nile, since it was such a big body of water, they could ship up and down, left and right. It was the source of their economy. They could do all of this. 
You could move an army on the water. You could load them up in a boat and send them. So it was a source of all this symbol of all that, that Egypt had, all of their authority, all of their power. And what God is saying is, I can turn that to blood. I can strike the Nile whenever I want. So Moses, if they won't believe the first one, try the second one. If they won't believe the second one, try the third one. When they see the third one, surely they will believe. Now we'll come back and we'll talk about miracles in a little bit. Um, but that's, that's the miracles that he's given. I want to come back at the end and kind of touch on, on the function of miracles in this. So that's the plan. If you do these things, that should work. And here's Moses' response. Moses says, I don't speak good. He says, Moses, oh Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Moses is not Charlton Heston. There's only the older folks are going to get that. There was a guy named Charlton Heston, and he played Moses in a movie. And, and he was, of course, Hollywood star and this magnificent speaking voice. And so in the movie that he played him, Aaron was a guy who didn't do a lot of speaking. <laughs> but what happened here is Moses is saying, Look, I don't speak well. I, I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Maybe I don't remember Egyptians so well anymore. And, and there's actually a little bit of an accusation in there, isn't it? He says, Lord, I have never been like that. And even since we've been speaking, it hasn't gotten any better. It hasn't improved. You haven't done anything for me, and, and you, you're going to send me to go do this? And the Lord's response is, the Lord's answer to this objection is the Lord. It is not, well, you know, we'll, I'll, I'll hire a speech-language pathologist, and we'll work on that lisp. It, that's not the answer. The answer is, who's made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Isn't it I, the Lord? Don't I have authority over the mouth? Look, Moses, I just told you, I have authority over Pharaoh, the most powerful person in the entire world. I have authority over him. I can raise him up. I can drop him down. I have authority over the common people. I can give, make him sick. I can make him well. I have authority over the Nile, the source of their wealth. Didn't I make the mouth? Couldn't I do something about this, Moses? Yes, it's true. You haven't improved since we've been talking, but are I not aware that your mouth works the way it works? I think I put it together that way. Isn't it I who made those things? Now go, therefore, and I will be your mouth, and I will teach you what you shall speak. So don't worry if you can't outline a three-point sermon in five minutes and explain you know, the intricate nature of the need for deliverance. It's not you doing it, Moses. It's me. I'm going to deliver my people. You just need to go stand there and watch. So that's something that's going to come up in this section is God in this section is a one-trick pony. He's got one message and he says it over and over and over again. Go to Pharaoh, deliver my people. What about this? Go to Pharaoh and deliver my people. But they won't go to Pharaoh and deliver my people. That's all he's going to say over and over again in this section. So I don't speak good. Now the, the next thing that Moses says is, oh my Lord, Please send somebody else. I don't think at this point Moses is doubting God. I don't think he's looking at God and going, you are not capable of doing this. I think Moses fully believes, Lord, I've seen a bush not get burned up. I've seen a snake uh, that turned into a stick. I've seen my hand. Lord, I, I get this. I understand. It's not, it's not that you can't do it. Lord, I am not the right person for this job. Surely there must be somebody better qualified to do this. The Israelites aren't going to trust me. They're already, they're already questioning me as an authority. 
Pharaoh's, you know, hates my guts. He was trying to kill me. All right, so it's a new Pharaoh, but they probably still want to get me. Uh, Lord, you've clearly made a mistake. It's not, I'm not the right guy for this. Send somebody else. I can't even speak well. So that's, that's his approach is, is, it's not you, Lord, it's me. I'm not the right person for this job. And the amazing thing is, verse 24, then the angel, or then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Once Moses gets to this point, now the anger of the Lord is kindled. And the very next verse is, and then lightning bolts flew from heaven and incinerated Moses where he stood for questioning God. And then Moses was cast out into outer darkness for doubting God's capability. None of that. Isn't that amazing? All it says is God became really mad at Moses. And he said, oh, you want me to send somebody else? Okay, I will send somebody else. Is not Aaron your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be your mouth. And with his mouth, I will teach you both what to do. Send somebody else? Okay, Moses is going with you. You're still going. I'll just give you somebody else to do the speaking for you. And the, the word mouth appears over and over and over again. So this is really that response to Moses' first objection of, I don't speak good. And so God says, well, you're going to go. Well, send somebody else because I don't speak well. Okay, Aaron's going to go. You tell him. What, I'll tell you what to say. You tell Aaron what to say, and Aaron will say it. That's how it's going to work. So you're still going, Moses. I've still decided that I'm going to work through you. And that's the way it is. And so he says, he will speak for you to the people and he will shall be your mouth and you shall be the God. You shall be as God to him. Whoa, you shall be as God to him. So is Aaron going to turn around and worship his brother? May it never be. What he's saying is, Moses, Aaron is going to be like your prophet. You will tell him what to say and he will be the one who speaks it. So I'm going to speak through you, and Moses, Aaron will be your prophet. He'll speak for you. You will be like God to him. In other words, you will give him divine words. And he says, take the staff which is in your hand, and you shall do these signs. So apparently God thought that Moses saying he didn't think, what was this? That was a confusing note, never mind. Um, apparently Moses thought that this was something that he could argue his way out of. He didn't doubt God's ability. He doubted himself, and he thought, Lord, if I just point out this one little thing that you've probably missed, then surely I'll be let free. Why is it God didn't incinerate him at the moment? When God's mad at you, don't bad things happen in your life? You get in car accidents or get a flat tire or something or you know, run out of bank, you bounce a check or something. Isn't that what happens when God's mad at you? No, that's what karma is. <laughs> what happens when God is mad at you is he fixes you. So this idea that he, his anger is kindled and yet Moses continues to speak, he continues to draw breath, we have to pause here for a second and remember, who is he speaking to? He's still at the burning bush. There's still this flame that doesn't consume it. And do you remember who I said that was last week? That, that angel of the Lord is Jesus himself. Because Jesus later will tell the Pharisees before Abraham was, I am. He used the holy name, and the Pharisees didn't miss it. They picked up stones to kill him. They knew what Jesus meant by that. So this is the Son of God speaking to Moses at this point. This is him addressing him. And you also get that because Jude verse 5 says Moses, or it says Jesus led them out of Egypt. 
So this is Jesus speaking to him. This is Jesus working with him. And that's why Moses can say, send somebody else. No, in other words, he can look God in the face and go, no. And he's not killed. It's because the Son of God, I don't know if you remember last week we talked about the economic trinity, and that's not who has the money and how the money flows. It's the roles each person in the trinity has. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, his role has been from before creation to be the Redeemer. The book of Revelation says that he was the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world. So he has always had the role of being the Redeemer, the one who, who mitigates, who, who absorbs, who deals with God's fury. So the Lord could be angry at him and he could survive because he's speaking with Jesus. That's what's happening there. So... The argument's over. God has, has, has rounded it all up. We're going to take care of everything you've objected to, Moses. Now go. So Moses goes back to his father-in-law and says, please let me go to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Moses, or Jethro says to Moses, go in peace. In ancient Near East, you don't just leave. You have to go to your host and ask permission to leave. And uh, I don't know if you remember from a couple other stories like uh, Jacob Oh, wait, no, don't go today. Go tomorrow, and, and we'll have a little feast. You, you need some food before you go. So he goes to, to Jethro, and Jethro just says, hey, go. You know, if the Lord's calling you to do this, you go do that. Go in peace. And this is another one of those, I wish I knew how this worked. The Lord said to Moses in Midian. So the burning bush episode's over. Now Moses has gone to his father-in-law, and God speaks to him in Midian. Remember I said God's a one-trick pony at this point? He's only got one message. Go back to Egypt. In case you forgot, since you came down off the mountain, don't forget, go back to Egypt. But he also tells them good news. He says, the men who are seeking your life are all dead. All of those people who are opposed to you are dead. Do you see the mercy of God in this? He doesn't tell Moses, just go do it because I said so. And then he gets there and goes, oh, good, all these people are dead. I'm not going to die. He's, he's already telling Moses, look, there's, it's safe to go do this, Moses. You can trust me. I'm sending you back because those who are hunting you are dead. And, and now it's, it's okay for you to go back. And so he says, um, so Moses took his wife and his sons. Sons, we're still fast forward. Last we heard he had one son. Now he's got multiple. And he had them ride on a donkey and he went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Moses, what's that in your hand? It's my staff. It's suddenly become the staff of God. Do you remember how we talked about the mountain, Mount Horeb? It was Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. It was because God dwelled there. He lived, you know, like in a little shack up at the top of it or something. No, it was God's mountain because he made it his mountain. He appeared there. There was an epiphany on the top of the mountain. That made it God's mountain. Why is this staff now God's staff? Because God's going to use that to accomplish great and mighty miracles. So take the staff of God in your hand. God can take something simple like Moses and turn it into something special. There's a, a famous sermon by uh, uh, Francis Schaeffer called No Little People, No Little Place. And he makes a great deal out of this staff being the staff of God. Ordinary piece of wood, something Moses has carried for years. Now it is transformed into the staff of God because God has decided this is what I'm going to use. Moses is an ordinary shepherd, been hanging out in the wilderness for quite a while. Now he's God's prophet because he has been chosen by God. God can take normal, ordinary things and use them for glorious purposes. Stick your hand in your robe. The robe you've been wearing, it kind of stinks too, by the way. And it's got some fleas because of the sheep. Go ahead and stick your hand in there. And when I pull it out, 
When you pull it out, it'll be a miracle. I'm going to use something as simple as your cloak to accomplish these great things. Moses, I want you to go deliver my people. Not because you're so special or you're, you're eloquent or you're wiser than anybody else. It's because I decided that I want to use you. So Moses, would you go? Go deliver my people. Um, when the church first approached me and, and wanted me to come out and candidate, not first, the second time they approached me and asked me to come out and candidate and I was available, I just remember thinking, man, I am totally not the right guy for this job. You folks are nuts. You know, they remember Tim from a long time ago, but, I, you know, it's, I, this isn't going to work. And they, I said, I talked with uh, one gentleman on the phone for quite a while and thought, okay, well, I don't think I'm right. I don't think I'm the dude to do this, but let's see what the Lord has in store. And so we'll take the next step. Um, I, I really didn't come here thinking, oh, am I going to save these people? <laughs> Have I got good news for you? I'm here. <laughs> I came in thinking, you know, Lord, you better show up or this is really going to tank. And, and I think he's been faithful. I think he's been good, uh, despite my best efforts. He's, he's done pretty well. So praise the Lord that he is in charge of his church. Praise the Lord that he can use a stick to deliver a people. Praise the Lord that he can use you to deliver a people. That's a, that's a tremendous message. And do you notice Moses in the midst of this is arguing? He's not happy about this. And yet God uses him. And God says, Moses, I understand all your objections. We're going to do it anyway. And did Moses succeed? He succeeded spectacularly. He brought the people out. It was wonderful. So let's go to the last section. God said, it's safe to return. Now he says, when you get there. So verse 21, and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. Pause. See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power. The question Moses raised was, what if your people don't believe it's you or that I saw you, that you sent me? If they don't believe, here's some miracles. If you do those, they will believe. There's no record of him doing these miracles in front of the Israelites. None. He doesn't do them. What he does is he goes to Pharaoh and he does these miracles. So this is instructive, is the miracles were for Israel to believe, and they're going to have a different effect on Pharaoh. So he does them before Pharaoh so that his people will believe, so that he will be delivered. But listen to what happens here. See that you do these before, all these miracles before Pharaoh, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. A miracle can take place and it can have multiple intended outcomes. So this miracle that Moses is going to go do, he's going to go throw his staff down in front of Pharaoh. The result in Pharaoh will not be, I repent and set cloth and ashes. It will harden his heart. He's going to go, how dare you desecrate a symbol of my power? And it's going to make him more angry and more angry and more angry. So when we hear, and this is kind of one of the quote unquote problems of Exodus, is God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Wasn't that cruel of God? Poor Pharaoh, he wanted to let the people go and God just held him still and said, no, you can't do that. It, it's not like God changed his heart or roped him into something he didn't want to do. What God is doing through these miracles is he's hardening his heart. Here's another miracle. And Moses and, and Pharaoh gets more angry and more resistant and more resistant and he just keeps hardening his heart. So God is doing the miracles, so God is hardening his heart, but it's Pharaoh already heading in that trajectory, already doing those things, I'm going to do that. Pharaoh's response is a hard heart. Moses' response to the miracles, it appears to be faith. 
okay, Lord, um, we can do this. I, I will go do, I didn't want to, but I'm going to go do that. I will follow you. What about the Israelites in front of whom the, or for whom the uh, miracles were supposed to be given? What's their response? It's a mushy middle. Because what happens when they get out in the desert? They start whining. Oh, you know, we had leeks back in Egypt, and, and we don't have any water, and we don't have any bread. Now we have bread, and we don't like it. And we want quail, and now what quail's coming out of our nose. We don't want quail. So it's kind of mushy. There's some people who believe. There's some people who's not. It, that is the function. That's what happens with miracles is it has different purposes, different results, and different people, and God can intend them all. So think, for example, of John chapter 6. Jesus has gone out. He's fed the 5,000. He's preached a wonderful sermon, fed people miraculously with bread. He hops in a boat, sails back to the other side. The crowd runs around the lake and follows him. And what he says in John chapter 6 is he says, why are you here? You're here because I fed you. And so what he says next is alarming. He looks at the crowd and he says, if you don't eat my body and drink my blood, you don't have life. And it's that mushy middle. They, wanted, they, they looked at Jesus. They went, hey, he produces food. Let's follow him. So that's why he says, okay, here's the food that you're going to get. Eat my body and drink my blood. How do you feel about that? And they go, well, this is a hard saying. Who can follow this? This is, Jesus, this is how Jesus grows a church, is by chasing a whole bunch of people off. And then he looks at his disciples and he says, are you going to leave too? And their response is, where else are we going to go? You've got the words of life. They don't want the food, they want Jesus. So this is, a, I think that's a picture of what these miracles are going to do. That when we get to the, the plagues, the 10 plagues, they're going to have one purpose in, Mo, in uh, Pharaoh, hardened heart. They're going to have another purpose in the faithful of Israel. They're going to believe and be amazed. And then there's a whole big swath of them in the middle that are going to go, well, we just want the stuff. And we could do without the God if that's okay. So could you give us more of the stuff? We want more food. We want better food. We need more water. Um, we don't like what's, uh, what's happening. So we're going to go back to Egypt. And the, and the miracle on their part is supposed to just show them to be what they really are. Mushy in middle. So the miracles can have multiple purposes. So God is going to demonstrate his authority over Pharaoh. He's going to demonstrate his authority over the Egyptian people. He's going to demonstrate his authority over the Nile. And, and by the way, he's going to say, I have authority over all your gods too, Egypt. And it's going to have different purposes. It's going to have different results in different people at different times. So that's the point is, is Pharaoh will harden his heart and he won't let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. A wise person at this point would go, doors over there. I love my son. Please don't kill him. But Pharaoh's heart is hardening. It's already, you see, it's already in a trajectory. It's already in a direction where it's opposed to God. And so we're not supposed to look at this and applaud and go, isn't that wonderful? The, the picture of the plagues, the picture of the exodus is the terrible nature of judgment that comes from people who will constantly oppose God in the face of all the evidence, in the face of everything that God has done, they will continue to oppose him.
So you hear people now say, you know, if God would just do a miracle, I'd believe. No, you won't. You won't. What did the Pharisees do? He cast out a demon. We got to kill him. Wait a minute. He healed a person who was born blind, but he did it on the Sabbath. We've got to kill him. He can't get away with this stuff. This is terrible. It's the Sabbath. If God performs a miracle, there's no guarantee that its purpose in your life is to breed faith. Hopefully it does. That would be the logical, the wise thing to say is God must be real. He did something incredible. But there's no guarantee of it. And that's why when we look at the Exodus and we get that echo going down through history to the end of time, there is a judgment coming. And it's terrifying. Now, it's terrifying. One of the reasons that it's absolutely terrifying is because it's perfectly just. It's not like God is, is throwing a temper tantrum or having a bad day. You caught me on an off day, bam, you're going to hell. That's, that's not how he works. God is not prone to mood swings. He's looking at this and he's saying, I have done this over and over and over again. I have sent you messenger. I have sent you picture. There's all of creation is screaming that there is a God and you continue to resist me. And judgment now comes. There's a day coming when it, when it happens. The good news is that who leaves Egypt is not only Israelites. It's a mixed company. There are people in Egypt who leave with the Israelites who say, that's a God I don't want to be on the wrong side of. I have watched these 10 plagues fall and I want to be on his side. The same thing at the other end of the Exodus when they enter the promised land. They, they have this long battle as they're going through the, through the land trying to get to the promised land and word gets out this God of theirs is, is wiping out kings. And it's not like they wiped everybody out in the promised land. Rahab and her family went, We've heard. We want to be on that God's side. So again, the miracles can have multiple purposes. But God is there and he's doing something important. He is not only threatening the Passover, but the Passover is delivering people too. So we'll get there. I, I so want to jump into the 12 plagues. I just want to get there right now and start preaching them. But we've got to follow the text and get there. So I'm, I'm reining myself in. I'm not going to let myself. No spoilers. That's, that's what I'm trying to do. No spoilers. Um, but there's plagues coming. But there's no spoilers. The, we've got that. I mean, he said, I'm going to kill your firstborn. That's the ultimate plague. That's the, the, the big plague, the, the one that's going to end it all. So with that, let's, let's close in prayer. Lord, boy, do I sound like Moses at times. Um, I think we all have those moments where we're not doubting you necessarily. Um, we're doubting ourselves. And therefore, we're saying, well, Lord, you, you can't possibly use something like me. Um, I, I can't do this right. I won't do it well. Um, I'm going to mess it up at some point. And yet, Lord, your response to Moses was, I will be your mouth. I will give you the words to say, you go do what, I, what I've told you to do. I have fitted you with miracles. I promise to speak through you. Now go do it. It's not you, Moses. And Lord, do I need to hear that. Father, you've called us to do numerous things. You've, you've given us a, a commission. Uh, you have made us your church. And Lord, I pray that you would fill us with the faith to do what Moses did, which is offer our complaints and our objections and then shut up and follow. And so, Lord, would you lead us? We pray and we ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.